Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. That was Tom Morello singing Let Freedom Ring. Every time I hear it, it ignites my freedom dreams. I'm Bill Ayers, and Malik Aleem and I are here with you for our seminar on freedom. We're broadcasting on the freedom frequency, and we're tuned in to the big and fundamental questions. Where do we come from? Where are we headed? What is freedom, and how do we get free? We're gathered here together in this fugitive space, looking uneasily at the world we've inherited, and busy in projects of repair and revolution. Today, I'm talking to you from Chicago, home to many indigenous peoples and nations, including the Three Fires Confederacy. As teachers, freedom fighters, and activists, we strive to remember and to honor a history of stolen land and resources, a history of violence and murder, of genocide, and we pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for justice. This is Light Ailey. We open every episode with a moment of Zen, the quiet contemplation of a poem. Today's poem is Iha by Ruth Arupe Sanabria. I am the daughter of doves that disappeared into dust. Hear my pulse whisper, progreso, justicia, progreso, justicia. I have many friends and 30,000 warrior angels to watch over my exiled skin. Look what occupies the four chambers of my heart. Revolution. You will know me by this. I am the daughter that never forgets. Our second feature is a stream of consciousness free write where we encourage you to shake free from whatever frenzied or frantic editor slash critic is perched on your shoulder commenting disapprovingly on your every sentence, and write a short, authentic piece from nowhere. The nowhere of our freedom seminar, the nowhere of the underground, and the nowhere of utopia. This is a moment to put words on the page. No editing or second guessing. Inviting, surprising new awareness to pop into your head. Unexpected and unannounced. Here's today's prompt. Sometimes we ask, what can one person do? The first step is to stop being one person. Move away from me and take steps toward creating a we. What steps will you take in the near future to move from me to we? Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. 
It's time now for our guest speaker series, Activists, Authors, and Artists After Hours, where we visit with comrades and co-conspirators who can help us think more deeply about the world we share, name this political moment with clarity and hope, and take the necessary steps toward creating an irresistible movement for freedom. We release our most radical imaginations, and we ask both what's going on, and then, importantly, what is to be done. I'm deeply grateful to be joined in dialogue with Mariam Kaba, educator and abolitionist organizer who's been building social movements for racial, gender, and transformative justice for years. She's the founder of Project NIA, an organization that builds participatory community justice projects in the fight to end youth incarceration. And many of you may know her from Prison Culture, the popular blog she's written for over a decade now, where she shines a bright light into the carceral state and the punishment bureaucracy, and thinks out loud with her spirited audience about how we can work toward the abolition of both. Her recently released book, We Do This Till We Free Us, Abolitionist Organizing and Transformative Justice, is a powerful guide to justice organizing and abolitionist politics. Welcome, Miriam. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Bill. I'm happy to be here. I'm really pleased that you're willing to spend some time with us. Um, when I told, I talked to several young Chicagoans about the fact that you and I were going to be in conversation, and you, of course, have had a huge impact in Chicago. But my producer, engineer, co-conspirator Malik Alim wrote me this. He has a question, and he said, oh boy, ask her about her origin story, because a lot of us, and a lot of Chicagoans, me included, see her as our movement mother, a wise woman even a superhero. I want to know where my superhero movement mother comes from. So I'm going to begin with Malik and let him have the first question. Oh, my gosh. I know. That's a lot, right? That's a lot to take in. <laughs> um, definitely no superhero here, but um, very, very grateful that, um, you know, anybody thinks that I had any positive impact on their life. So, um my origin story, I was um, born in New York City um, in 1971. Mm. I um, am the daughter of Musa Kaba and of Salam Fin Kaba. Uh, my parents are... Uh, my dad's no longer living, but my mom still is. My They were um, return migrants, which means that um, my father moved here um, to the United States um, in the early, early 60s, I think it was, mm -hmm. maybe mid-60s. It's hard for me to remember uh -huh. the exact chronology for him, but... Um, and uh, my mother came um, in 1970 when she married my father. There, my mother was born in Senegal and she was raised in the Ivory Coast. Um, my father uh, was born in Guinea um, and spent uh, most of like his entire growing up years over there. Um, he was part of the um, anti-colonial struggle in Guinea mm -hmm. um, and when um, Guinea won its independence, um, 
my father was among the very first of the cadre of folks um, who the new president of Guinea, Sikutsure, who was a childhood friend of my dad's, um, wow. a struggler. Um, they, uh, he wanted to send different people around uh, to different uh, places to learn particular skills and knowledge that would help support the ongoing revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, so my father, uh, that's how he made his way to Howard University um, and uh, to study economics at first. Um, wow. And the idea had been that, uh, you know, he would get the skills that he needed. He ended up then at Columbia for a graduate degree in economics. Um and then that, you know, he would take those skills back to his home country um, to contribute to the kind of socialist revolution. Um, oh. And so uh, long That's story a- short, that didn't occur um, for lots of very, uh, for my father, dispiriting and um, kind of initially despair inducing reasons. And, um, but I ended up, uh, getting, you know, being born in New York because my father took a job at the United Nations. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, and so I grew up in the city uh, during the 1970s um, and uh, came of age in the 1980s here in the city. Um, I learned a lot about kind of thinking about not even just thinking about, but coming to age um, in my ideas about racial justice because of all the things that were happening in the 1980s in the city, um, the early to mid 1980s. And that's when I came to my political consciousness um, and started to organize with other teenagers around um, things that were going on. We, um, when I was, I think it must have been like around 12, Michael Stewart was killed, um, a young man who was supposedly tagging some um, um, some subway cars and the police ended up killing him. Right. I remember uh, Eleanor Bumpers getting killed. Right. Um, I remember um, the a situation that occurred at a place called Howard Beach, where a young person who was not who was close to our age group was beaten up um, by a white mob um, and ended up uh, getting hit by a car in the middle of the street and getting killed, which caused a huge conflagration. Uh, I by the time I was ready to start considering like, um, you know, applying to college, I um, the Central Park case was happening um so we we just we were just engulfed in all of these issues you know cases that involved either vigilante racist violence or um or state violence um also things that were happening during this time were um was the anti-apartheid um struggle was kind of in its um had had matured at that point and um folks were more people were getting involved internationally to push for mandela's release i just share that because when i left to go to college um in the late 1980s i was um like 
I had I was imbued by all of those struggles um, and all of that work and kind of took that work with me to college and continued to work on these issues of racial justice. I was the head of the Southern Africa Committee on my campus and we were like building shanty towns in the middle of our campus, right. you know, demanding divestment from um, apartheid regime and Last thing I'll say is, you know, it was in college that I came to consciousness around gender issues and began to actually see myself as a woman. I hadn't really had that consciousness. I've said that before, um, but that became very important to my life and my kind of political lens and development. Um, and that's just a little bit about me. I'm, I have a bunch of siblings. Um, that's important in my life. I'm from a huge huge, huge family. My father was um, one of 27 kids. Wow. Um, my father, <laughs> my grandfather was, uh, had four wives. Um, on my mother's side, my mother is one of another huge number um, in the 20s. Um, so I have a, like a, a, a very amazing, um, like I come from a, a tribe, you know? Yeah, I love it. I, I, I actually love it. And I can imagine, you know, I've interviewed Rashid Khalidi on this podcast, and Rashid comes from a very large Palestinian family. And every time somebody's coming for dinner, he says, oh, it's my cousin. And I, after about 5,000 visits, I'm like, damn, man, you have a lot of cousins. Absolutely. I'm in the same boat. I have cousins and aunties and uncles and every possible permutation yeah well i met a, i met a couple of your sisters actually in washington dc when we were there together that's right um, you did yeah. they're the yeah. youngest the that's right that's yeah. right they were there um but but there's so much that i'm so glad malik alim asked this question because i knew some of it but i didn't know all the new york overlap so i was in new york and probably i can't believe you were a 12 year old organizer that explains something about what you bring into the present uh you know struggle but but certainly, I lived in uh, on on the Upper West Side when the Central Park Five happened. I was involved in the Eleanor Bumpers uh, protests, and so we, we we overlapped even when you were a kid, I guess. Um, Absolutely, we didn't know one another, but there you are. And this is a <laughs> this is a very heavy history. Your dad's history as an internationalist, as an anti imperialist uh, liberation fighter. I mean, that somehow gets worked into your. Uh, into your life and becomes, I think, uh, at least part of your uh, deep, deep uh, origin, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And your mom, was she political? Yeah, it's a great question. And what depends on what you mean by political, I always think my mother is who I got my, um, my father is where I, I, like my father helped me develop a political understanding of myself and of the world and like explicitly so I think. Um, my mother, um, I always say, is the person from whom I really got an understanding of um, uh, mutual aid. Mm. And um, she was a person who is probably who um, helped me understand myself as a spiritual being very explicitly. Mm -hmm. um, she, you know, she was so young. She got married when she was 19. Um, when she moved to this country, she couldn't speak English. Mm -hmm. 
she had me um, a year and change after she arrived. And I always say like, we grew up together, mm-hmm. um, you know, while she was taking ESL classes at the local library, I was a baby tagging along and doing story hour times uh-huh. uh, while she was doing that. She's incredibly courageous. She, you know, have had all these children and then went back to school um, and then took a job when my father at the time was like, you don't need a job. She took a job anyway and worked from as as far as I can remember growing up um, outside the home in addition to inside the home. But she always, um, she was just always open to helping other people. She's Mm -hmm. always been, I've told this story before, but I don't think I'm in a public setting at all. But um, when I was a kid, um, I was watching, my parents were watching some show on television, some documentary about like famine in Ethiopia. And um, I I guess they didn't realize that I was also watching, even though I was sitting like the, you know, kind of the foot of the TV Mm -hmm. area while they were watching and I was paying attention. I I don't know how old I was, like seven, maybe eight. Um, But anyway, One thing that happened was that in the middle of the night, I ran downstairs and apparently was taking down all of the all of our food and everything from our cupboards and putting Mm. them onto the counter and like shoving them in shopping bags. Mm. And I was doing this at like, I don't know, midnight or one o'clock in the morning. My parent, my mother ran downstairs because apparently I was making some sort of like ruckus. And I was there putting all this stuff in these bags. And she's like, you know, I mean, she she had a bunch of kids. She's exhausted. She's working. She did not yell. She did not oh. make me feel small. She just was like, Miriam, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I looked at her and I was like, I'm getting all the food to bring to the kids that don't have any food. Wow. And wow. my mother could have gone so many ways because she's at that time, what is she like 27 or what? You know, like I think about myself at that age and I'm like, I would have been, I don't know what I've been doing to my kid or, you know, but she just was so calm and she just looked at me for like a minute and she said, honey, that's our food. You can't take, if you take all of this, like we're not going to have what we need to eat like Mm -hmm. in the morning. Um, But I'm going to, how about this? On the weekend, we will look for a place here in the area that will take donations for kids that need food. And we will go to the supermarket, we will shop, and we will bring the food to the kids. I promise you that. Mm. And I just tell that because it's such an important, it's just a window on my mother and her, uh, like her not, like her taking me seriously, even though I was a kid, her not making me feel stupid or ridiculous that I wanted to do something, but her encouraging the fact that I wanted to do something for other people and that she would look for a way to help make that happen. And sure enough, she did, you know, we went and found a place and went shopping and brought the food over, um, you know, and, and it was like a moment of just encouraging me to be like, you know, if you care about something, if you want to help people, you should do that. It's important to do that, you know? And so that's just my mom. She's still that exact same way. She does yeah. not loud about it or, you know, whatever. She always had, our, our house was open to all 
everybody and all my friends who needed a place to stay when they were kicked out of their mm. homes like mm. she just never um she always believes strongly in like if somebody's hurt if somebody's suffering it's your responsibility to be in relationship with those people and support them in however whatever you have at your disposal you need to put that forward so that's where that's that like part of my mom is very much part of all of us I think it's part of you without question. And I and I love the way you began by saying what depends on what you mean by what's political. Yeah. To me, that's a very political um, stance. And I have, you know, I've raised three kids who are now in their 40s. And only one of them, I, I would say, is political in the sense that I'm political or yeah. the sense that you're political. But one is an artist and one is a teacher. And they are the, the most loving, caring, brilliant uh guys I know. And so I think they're political too. They understand the world. They're not closed off to it. They, like you, they believe in helping others like you and me. They believe that that society can be changed and must be changed. They don't do it explicitly in quite the way uh, that you do it. But I think that that's it's worth noting that political can be a much larger container than we sometimes allow. Yep. So, so this is a deep, this is a deep uh, history. The one thing I want to, that I don't know, and I'd love to know is, you say you went off to college and became part of the anti-apartheid movement there and a leader in that. Uh, What, where did you go? I went to Montreal. I went to McGill University. Oh, I love, I love that place. It's great, isn't it? It's It's a, what I love about it, and I I was there a lot during the 60s, because it's a political campus. It's a it's a deeply um, internationalist, people from all over. And um, so you had an okay experience there. I had a great experience. I really did. I always tell people, I'm like, you know, maybe just it's not everybody had a great experience at college or whatever. But I really feel like leaving at that time to go to school really saved me. And in a lot of ways. And when I got to campus, it was like I mentioned, it was the tail end of a struggle that folks had been engaged in, you know, for 25 years before. Um, And when I um, got to school a year later, Nelson Mandela was released from Uh Robbins Island. Um, Uh And so I got to be in the, I never forget, I got to be early morning in my dorm, sitting on the couch with a whole bunch of other people watching him walk out Mm. of prison it was ridiculously um just like I don't know you it made you feel like you could you were part of something even though you were a tiny part of something at the tail end of a big long struggle like I remember all of my friends who were part of the Southern Africa committee we got together to Mm. watch this um and just the tears and the feeling of, like, I can't believe this is happening right now. Yeah. But knowing a- at that time, I knew it was like, you know, even though I was a kid, I was like, what, 18 or 19. I went to yeah. school when I was 17. So um, I just was like, oh, my God. Like, yeah. 
this is huge. Yeah, it's another moment that you and I share because uh, we were in different parts of the world, but I had the same experience. And I think that's an emblem for your work, somebody walking out of prison. And yeah. even though even though you yourself didn't quite do it, but you were part of doing it, yeah. and, it and it's that sense of collective victory, that sense of hope. I, I, think, I think that image could be uh, on a button and that would be... Miriam Kaba's, uh, you know, symbol. Oh, I would just, yeah, that, what a beautiful way of putting it. And I really didn't think because, you know, at that time I wasn't doing um, uh, anti-prison work yet. I hadn't, I hadn't like developed any sort of politic of the prison, you know, around the prison itself. Um, even though, like, you know, I look back and I can see the moments when that was already in place for me, just in my personal life and what, but I, I hadn't, I didn't develop a politic about prison at that time. And to just to see that experience, that experience really did shape me in such a, a way. And then um, we were invited as students that had been doing work on anti-apartheid stuff to Ottawa when he was, um, when he came to Canada for his tour. Wow. Being there and I got to be standing in the line of all these students like and that must have been in 91 um and got to shake his hand oh my and then I thought oh my god yeah. yeah so it was such a it was just such a profound moment for me yeah and and what's amazing about it is for decades um you know, forever. It was unthinkable. It was unthinkable that this could happen. And then it happened. And that's also, that's critical to your politics. And I think to any truly revolutionary politics is the idea that the impossible actually isn't impossible if you put your mind to it. And I think that's part of your core belief too. And I, I'm interested that it comes from. Yeah. And if you put your actions to it with others, because that really was the, you know, if there's anything about that experience, it's that you don't, you may not live to see the end of the thing that you're involved in, but that if you, you know, join other people and you're tenacious and you keep pushing, it's possible that anything that people think is impossible can be made possible. And that. That was just another, you know, beautiful example. And I just remember talking to my dad that afternoon um, and my father just saying, you know what, this is part of, this is life. Like, you know, this is, this is why we live. This is why we, we are involved. This is why we do what we do, you know? Your, your, your father sounds absolutely extraordinary. Your mother as well. He was, extraordinary. I miss him every day. He I'm was. certain. Um, but this idea that we, that number one, that we name the impossible as possible, but number two, that we do it with others. We don't do it alone. And that sounds, that's a lesson your father, it sounds like your father was preaching from the beginning. From the beginning, yeah. And I'm interested in this in your life because... Uh, I know many of the organizations you founded in Chicago. It's funny, Miriam. You know, we, I constantly claim you as a Chicagoan, even though, <laughs> even though you don't live here. Um, but you live, you lived here for long enough to have an impact that is that is still echoing out in such important ways. But you're a New Yorker now, and you were a New Yorker. But, but I claim you anyway. Um, <laughs> but, but I've known many organizations that you founded. Uh, I've read many of your writings, often collaboratively. Why? Um, because again, to me, 
I don't know how to do anything significant that doesn't involve other people. Like we, we're not people who are just, we're so interdependent with each other, even when we don't realize that we are. Mm. You know, there's just nothing in my life from the time I wake up until I go to bed that doesn't have somebody else's handprints or their imagination or their, you know, ideas um, or their labor uh, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't in some way touch somebody else, whether it's the breakfast I eat, you know, if I ate fruit, somebody picked it, somebody Mm. planted it. If I, um, you know, when I'm taking my medications, somebody invented that in order to provide me with an opportunity to have some ease when I'm, you know, in an apartment, somebody built it. If I'm, um, you know, watching the news, somebody made it. Um, somebody's telling me information that came from somewhere else. Um, I, so I, I always want to remember that because to me, it's a grounding, um, and it's a grounding and a good reminder of the fact that again, you know, every work, everything worthwhile is done with others. Mm. That that's really the bottom line. So, and also I just, you know, I'm just, I don't have enough good ideas for <laughs> to sustain anything right. <laughs> significant right. if I don't collaborate with other people to make it better. Well, it's a critical reminder, especially for organizers who want to bring about a, a future of joy and justice, because we live in a culture that even the Pope in his January message this year, he said, you know, the West is suffering from, um, he called it radical individualism. I call it toxic individualism so that everything gets reduced to me. So family values is take care of my family. Public safety is I own a gun. Public education is buy what you can get. Uh, public health is don't get sick. I mean, it's a, it's a very weird culture we live in. And this is a huge reminder that if we're going to transform society, we should take on toxic individualism explicitly and remind ourselves again and again that we do this with others. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and it, it reminds me very much of, of uh, and you've heard this before, but but I think it reminds me of Ella Baker and the, the role that she played so importantly and, and Barbara Ransby's magnificent book about Ella Baker, which yes. brought her to the forefront in such, such a vivid way. Yes, but, that's uh, how but, I really got to know, you know, know, feel like I know her, yeah. uh, you know, before I just heard her name. Yeah. Well, I have always thought of Barbara and you and several others as in the in the tradition. But Ella Baker's question, who are your people mm-hmm. is something that I think, um, you embody as well as you ask explicitly. That's what you ask people, right? I, you know, I don't, I don't personally ask people who my, who their people are, but I do think about who my people are right. all the time. You know, I do try to think about um, who am I truly um, feeling like I can be accountable to? Mm. Um, who should I be in communication with? Who should I, take advice from who should I embrace the critique of Um, I think about that all the time because I don't you know 
it's not enough. Like it's never going to be enough for my vision of the world to be the controlling vision of Mm. a political struggle and a political fight. I, you know, I have my ideas of what should be good and what, you know, what's good and what's bad and whatever, but ultimately it's going to be our collective vision of the world that's going to win or not. And so I'm very interested in figuring out with whom I can have, I can struggle and be in integrity with. And ultimately, if folks think that what I'm doing is a mess, I, I want to be making sure that there are people who can tell me that. And mm. I'm lucky that I do have people who can tell me when they think that I'm wrong or when they think that there's something I'm missing or who can pull on me and be like, you know, are you sure? Like, yeah. is this the right, you know? And I feel so like that's, I feel so lucky that that's the case, but it's not just luck. It's something I actively have tried to cultivate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, so this question of, um, of a collective vision and where does that vision come from? I mean, everything you're saying uh, resonates with me as a kind of anti-vanguardist, anti, you know, um, charismatic leader kind of a sense of movement building. But that collective vision, I'm suddenly thinking of Miles Horton's autobiography, which was we make the word we make the path by walking. By walking. So yeah, yeah. Something like that. And and so where does our vision come from? Well for me, um, you know, I came into the political vision I have now over time. And I always tell people, particularly when I talk with young people, like I actually have, there was a time when I was really certain about things, including certain about what I thought about things. That was, mm. And I was really young when that was true, because as I mentioned, you know, like I started co-founded my first organization when I was 15. And so I, and, you know, and this is something too, I have, I have college friends of mine recently were posting something about online about um, one, a couple of my friends, and they were saying something like, they recognized recently that when I was like giving directions to people about things <laughs> on camp, I was like 18, right. right? Like, and that I was like running a bunch of things, right? At that time. And I actually felt very certain of myself. Um, mm-hmm. When, when I was very, very young. And I've gotten progressively less certain as I've gotten older. Not that I'm not confident in my ability of being able to do X, Y, Z. I can, you know, I'm competent. I can do things. But like sure of, my, of what I believe, um, probably less so. Because I'm, you know, I realize that you change your mind. Uh, yeah. And the world changes. I mean, you're a work in progress and so is the world. Exactly. So that that's real, right? Um, and so the collective vision I've arrived at now, which is, you know, prison industrial complex abolition rooted in transformative justice and feminism is the product of growth and learning and unlearning and Mm-hmm. struggling with other people and that being a part of how I've learned um you know so you know books and music and art and all the things that feed that learning um so I 
so yeah so my political vision is that but like I used to be a police and prison and like preservationist right right like I live in this world I grew up in this but you know that's punishment is the climate um and I grew up in the climate um and I couldn't even um, have imagined a different way of being and it wasn't until I read and heard and listened and struggled that I could see that that wasn't the way for me and that wasn't the way for a society that I wanted to live in so uh, this is why I'm so adamant about the fact that like you didn't always know what you know now. Right. And once you, what you know now informs what you'll know in the future. Right. And you just are constantly a work in process and progress. That's so right. Yeah. You know, and that's just how it is. And like being, and also I don't fear like quote being wrong. Like I don't, it's, I don't feel like to me, it's not a gotcha. If somebody pulls something up, well, I'm glad I didn't grow up in the social media age. So that's one thing. But like, if somebody goes back and finds one of the zines I made when I was 16 years old, and then tries to put that on the internet and be like, ah, see, this person was whatever, I will laugh my head off. Right. You know, and like, be really honestly laughing. Because of course, I said a bunch of bullshit when I was 16. Right. And of course, I'll say some more bullshit now. Exactly. Turning 50. Like, right. I'm not, like, I'm not, <laughs> I don't, I don't find this to be like a, a point of my, um, you know, that, that, that I'm inconsistent. I find right. it to be like a point that I'm like always learning and growing and changing, you know? <laughs> I think that's the most important stance. And, and I, I like the distinction you made between confidence, competence, and arrogance. I mean, it's one thing to be self-righteous and think you know everything, but to be confident is a good thing. Mm-hmm. And, when it, and, you know, if you think you were accused, of, if you think back on your life and say, gosh, I was kind of self-righteous and arrogant when I was 16 or 18, think about me. I mean, you know, good Lord. I mean, the Weather Underground, uh, you know, yes. we're, we're often asked to apologize for what we did. And yeah. I always refuse, except to say, I apologize for being self-righteous. I apologize for being arrogant and yeah. pushing people away. Because the one thing about self-righteousness is, you know, you're wrong when you're self-righteous, you know? <laughs> I mean, I mean, so I think that that sense of continuing to grow, I tell my students, yeah, I'm, at, I'm 76 years old, and I tell my students, I am what I am not yet. I'm wow. still trying to get to who I am. Um, I I'm love not gonna... that. Do you want to say something about, a st- you know, your st- thought about apology and apologizing? I'd love to hear. Well, just well, in you general, know, because sure. a big part of my kind of, as I mentioned, you know, my vision, my political vision is, is it um, in is a, you know, PIC abolition rooted in transformative justice. And a big part of transformative justice work does involve, quote, apology and what we understand to be repair and all mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I'm interested in, in your general thoughts about that. Well, my, my general thoughts are that apology and repair are important to building the human community, critical 
to, to building the human community. And since we all make mistakes, yep. we have, I was talking to a group of 17 year olds yesterday in a, in a high school classroom. And I said, look, you're 17 and you have things that you've done wrong that you want to apologize for. I'm 76. I have a much longer life of mistakes. Right. Um, but, but, I think it's important, but what I also think is critical is that you're apologizing in the context of community. Yeah. You're not apologizing to CBS News. Yeah. I mean, that's that's not who I'm interested in. So if if Fox News gets me and says, "Well, you did this," and you, I'm not interested in that because that's not repair. Yeah. That's gotcha, as you said earlier. That's that's just trying to win points, and winning points isn't what repair. And sincere collective apology is about. Yeah. So that's my general sense. I, I love that because I love what you said about it being in the context of community. Mm. And that's, that resonates with me so much because that's really what matters in the end. Um, you know, like it's the question of who are you actually willing to be accountable to? Exactly. And it's not, you're not accountable to every single human in the world you don't have a relationship with every single human in the world you choose who to be accountable to based on the relationships you have with folks and i think that to me is an insight that really helps us understand how we're going to actually address harms in general yeah, and and you think about context. I mean, I've been indicted for several things over over my lifetime. I'm not going to go into court and apologize to the prosecution who's trying to put me in prison. That's I mean, that's that's not that's not my community. That's not the world I want to live in. In fact, I'd like to convert those prosecutors into being members of humanity and not agents of the carceral state. But that's my job. So yeah. I, I want to pivot. Um, we have a little time left, and, I, and I'd like to pivot to your book. We do this till we free us. Um, published by the the wonderful Haymarket Press in Chicago, making you another another link to your Chicagoan uh, persona. Uh, but but say a word about the book. It's it's rocketed uh, to the bestseller list, which um, was absolutely surprising to me, and yet so worthy, so right. Say a bit about publishing this book, pulling it together, and it also represents a kind of a collective effort. Absolutely, absolutely. You will always find. Um, my, you know, I like, I really do mean it when I say that, you know, every, everything worthwhile is done with others. I, um, I did not want to do a book like this or just a book in the traditional sense of things, even though I've made books mm -hmm. and I've been, you know, published in books um, mm -hmm. before. And I was at your book release at uh, the yeah. experiment. Yeah, I was there a couple of years ago when you did that earlier book. Yeah. Yes, that's the. Uh, it was missing daddy, right? Was that the one? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so I've made other books, and I've self-published books, and I'm a longtime maker of zines. Um, but I had, you know, been asked by Haymarket for a few years now to, you know, do you want to make a book, another book, or write your own book, or whatever. And they wore you down. That's what I happened. I said huh? no. Yeah, yeah. But it was the uprisings, actually, um, that uh, started in May of mm -hmm. last year. And uh, the demands that were ringing out in the street for the first time that were really deeply abolitionist demands of defunding policing, 
um, and, you know, abolition. Um, and when they came back to me in the summer, I was like, they were like, you know, we, we could pull together a bunch of writings at, that you've done over the years and connect and create kind of like a, a door for people who are interested in PAC abolition um, to kind of open and look into and decide, you know, if they want to walk through. Um, and the thing that was also important was that they offered um, Tamara Knopper as an editor for this. And mm -hmm. I have such great respect for Tamara. And I was like, um, if, if she's willing to do it and she's willing to be involved, okay. I also was very clear that I've been, you know, I am juggling so many things all the time that I could be, you know, helpful in answering questions and reading a few things that people wanted to send to me that were edited pieces. Um, and that I would include a new piece that um, I had written with Rachel Herzing in the book, but I really didn't have time to do more new things. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really how it came together. It came together, you know, kind of really in an organic way. And it also came together so fast. I mm. mean, literally, like we started working on it in, I think, August, maybe. Mm. And it was out on February, you know, uh, it was out in February, February. That's 10th. amazing. Yeah. It's just the turnaround that was so, so quick. Everybody put in so much, you know, just Naomi, who's the, um, the editor of the abolition papers series for Haymarket was great and wrote a forward, you know, Tamara did an incredible job with editing um, everybody at Haymarket that was supportive that got, you know, all the copywritten stuff together, et cetera. The book was not advertised in any sort of traditional way that regular books are. We didn't do like, you know, a bunch of, you know, huge uh, arcs and all that other stuff. I literally asked people for blurbs like two weeks, <laughs> gave them two weeks of time during the holidays in December to respond. And I got so, I asked so many people to do a blurb because I literally didn't think I thought I would get like five people if I asked 30 because it was so, <laughs> such a great right. And instead I got all 30, you know, like I, I love <laughs> it. And you got some wonderful people, Eve Ewing, Ruth Gilmore, Barbara oh, Ransby. So many. I, didn't really, again, I didn't think people would be able to turn it around that quickly. And I do also think that for me, that was my first moment with that was where the, you know, with this book project that told me something about, how um, I just felt so just grateful in a yeah. real way, like deeply, deeply grateful that folks showed out for me and showed up for me in that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I understand your gratefulness. I also think that you were embraced by that community. So, so yeah, yeah that's people? really what it is. Yeah. That's really what it is, that I felt embraced by people who were like, I'll read this in a week. You know what I mean? During yeah. my Christmas, you know, <laughs> holidays, like, right. I, like this is so meaningful to me and so moving. And I take those blurbs, like I'm going to hold them forever. You know, I really feel so grateful to everybody. Right. You know, I, I, I think, I think it really is a representation of decades of work. It's not something that happens in a minute. It happens yeah. because there's a community. And as you say, this political moment uh, starting 
in the spring of last year is a moment that is uh, calls out with urgency. So I really urge people, if you want to be able to talk about abolition to a skeptical audience, if you want to know about the art and science of organizing, I really urge you to pick up We Do This Till We Free Us. I want to hit one more thing um, yeah. before, we, before we close, and that is a dialectic that I worry about all the time, and I think you do too. Um, and that is the, the, the long term, the long run of being an organizer. You come up against obstacles. You come up against defeats. You have campaigns that work and campaigns that don't work. Mm -hmm. But somehow you don't burn out. So you love the world enough to keep going. But somehow you've also learn to balance that with loving your own life enough to take care of yourself and to take care of your people. How do you, how do you talk, how do you understand that dialectic of keeping going uh, and, and staying human? It's something I worried, I've worried about my whole adult life. Mm, yeah. Well, I mean, you've done that, you know, I, I just think, Oh, you know, I always think like for me, um, because I believe and because I really just was root, I have been rooted in collective care my entire life. Right. There's no I don't I don't exist just as me. And I and it, this was like drilled into my head from like I probably like from the womb, you know? Like right, you right. just aren't you're just not just your own person. And that does come from maybe a non-Western vision of individualism. And in some cases, people may think that's really a problem. For me, it's been a boon because mm. it just every single moment of my life, I remember that I'm not alone, mm -hmm. that I'm not just responsible for myself and that I'm not by myself. And so because of that, I feel usually like I just, I feel held you know, right. I feel right. held and I feel um, I feel held by not just the people, the living. I felt I feel held by my ancestors. Mm. I feel held by my dad who isn't on the plane, on the like life plane anymore, mm. but is definitely present in my thinking and in my, you know, good and bad times. I feel held by a higher power than myself, mm. um, rooted in that and really in, just not in a proselytizing way, but just in a, just in a real knowledge that my life is not that significant to like, it's significant to me and it's significant to some people who love me, but I'm not some like, I'm not the center of anything. And I, I do think that having that deeply, deeply like in my, the marrow of my bones allows me to feel like I can move through the world in a way that doesn't leave me um, vulnerable to burning out in it. Right. Yeah. Cause yeah. I also take time. Like I also do things I really love to do. Exactly. I also like, I, you know, I love, I just, I love to be part of other people's excitement, you know, my nibblings and my God kids. And, you know, I don't have, Children, biological children myself but I'm rooted in small right. people you know like and I right. love to you know when my friends have babies one of the reasons I knit and crochet <laughs> and do that kind of stuff it's because I want to be 
part of the life of that new life, you know? Sure. Yeah. So, so you're held by your community. You're held by your ancestors. You're also saying you're held by the future. Um, you're held by the coming generation. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. That's a joy, right? It's like, and it gives me motivation and fuel, right? Yeah. Like, cause I, I think to myself, I don't want these small people to, I want them to live in a world that's better. Mm. That's different. That, um, you know, that lives up to them and right. their like beauty and their lovingness and their all those things. It sounds corny to people. But not to me. Yeah. It's, <laughs> not to me. It's like to me, it, it like I'm not, and I'm not like, I don't know. It's not false anything. It's just like, I really think these things and that's probably what has held me in good stead um, yeah. over, over time. And I just believe in like, and then I want to also step I want to do other things um, mm -hmm. that aren't like I, I'm looking for, you know, I'm turning 50 in a few months. Wow. I know. A milestone. Let's have a party. <laughs> really, it's a big milestone for me because I really grew up thinking I wasn't going to make it to this age. I didn't think I'd make it to 30 and look yeah. at this. <laughs> I thought I did. I honestly always thought I would die like before, I, I thought I would die at four, before 40. And so when I turned 40, I had a massive celebration and a big party because I could, I was like, if I make it to that point, I'm celebrating like hell because I didn't, you know, I was chronically ill. I had like a lot of things. I'm still chronically ill, but like I had all this stuff and I didn't think I was going to make it. Um, and so when I did, it's like every day is like gravy beyond that. And now turning 50, I'm thinking like, I, I won't, I, I probably need to be in a different relationship to, to, to the work I've been doing. Um, and I'm trying to think about what that's going to look like. Yeah. And it feels exciting actually. Like what Very. could I, what could I be doing? Like what, how can I support, you know, I'm not like, I can't, I really can't do the marching things anymore that I did. I can't um, be in the streets in the same kind of way though I still you know try to get out from time to time but I I'm definitely not doing the same things I was doing 20 years ago 30 years ago um you know I have so I'm trying to find the role that would be the most useful right um, and yeah and I'm looking forward to like what it's going to look like if I'm you know when I get to 76 Right. What is that going to be? Right on. Uh, keep keep putting one foot in front of the other. I mean, when you say my, I want to just highlight a dialectic here, which is when you say my life is not that significant, of course, there's two things that we have to hold in mind. And as a teacher, my whole life, I have kind of tried to live with this contradiction, which is everyone, everyone who comes before me in a classroom and every one of us is the one of one, the one and only. There'll never be another Miriam Kaba to walk the earth. On the other hand, we are each one of the many, and we're exactly like everybody else in the sense that we're completely unique. I mean, and and also in the sense that we're born, we suffer, we live, we die. So we're we're one of the many, and we're the one of one. And I don't holding that in mind is difficult, but I think important. Um, it puts your life in perspective. You know, I think so. I think so. I mean, I I don't. I really. I think I'm less on the side of like people's uniqueness. Um, just, yeah, I, I think you're, you're special to yourself, hopefully. Yeah, like, basically. I think, that's, yeah. I think yeah. that's great. And I think, you know, you should embrace you and 
I also think you should get out of your own way. Well, I think that's true. But, I, but, but as not- a teacher, well, as a teacher, I'm wanting to say to other teachers, look at your classroom and don't think that these kids can be summed up by a label, B-E-L-D. Oh, you know, they are the one of one. They are precious, and you have to see them as precious at the same time. That I'm down for. That yeah. I'm down for. And, you know, Ruth Wilson Gilmore says, where life is precious, life is precious. And exactly. it's really true. Exactly. Yeah. I love I love her. I love that. But I have to say, I think we've we've run out of time, although I could talk to you for hours. And I wanted to say my admiration, respect for you, even my awe of you knows no limits. And I couldn't be more grateful for you spending this time with us. And I look forward to seeing you when the fog lifts. I look forward to you coming back to Chicago. Yeah. I look forward to lifting a glass uh for your 50th birthday. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Bill, for having me. And also, can I just say that you um, really have been a touchstone for me. And um, just one of the things I have experienced is your and Bernadine's um, kind of your openness to younger people. Mm. Always. I just see you always in community always opening up your home to oh. us. You know, when we were trying to raise money for We Charge Genocide, you all hosted us to oh. do a fundraiser at your place and were like open up your your own communities to other people. And just, you know, the one-on-one advice you've given, the constant just being present oh. and being um, constant and being generous all those things I take and I think to myself, I want to embody that more. And I want to, um, and that again, those are touchstones for me around how to be in the world. So I just, uh, I'm just so grateful to Well, thank you. I, I'm really honored and I, I appreciate you so much. I will, I want you to stay healthy, stay well, um, sending love and light to you and to your beloveds. Um, thank you so much. Let's talk again soon. Absolutely. Bye. Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends from the podcast Ergo and to Malik Alim, producer, friend, comrade, and co-conspirator, as well as engineer and producer. Thanks, Malik. Under the Tree is hosted and written by Bill Ayers. Theme music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morello. This week's poetry beat is by Free A Beats. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Under the Tree wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's go forward, keep rising, and make your life a constellation beyond a single star. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.